0: You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 25th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist in association with UBS. Hello and welcome to a very special Christmas Day edition of The Globalist. I'm Father Christmas. No, it's me, Tom Edwards, here in London. On the programme today, we're embracing the Christmas spirit, in case you've missed that. And we'll be bringing you a look back at some of the moments of the past 12 months across design, culture and more. We'll also pay a visit to a toy factory in Finland, known for its traditional Christmas playthings.
1: As people grow increasingly aware of the harmful environmental effects of plastic toys, which are often discarded just after a year or two, wooden toys are enjoying somewhat of a renaissance.
0: Monocle's design editor and elf... Nick Munez recaps some of his favourite architecture stories of the year. Ebenezer Scrooge joins us. No, sorry, Andrew Muller's here to tell us what we learned in 2023.
2: Much of what we learned this year was unamusing in the extreme, as for the umpty thousandth consecutive year, we learned that humankind had not, in many respects, learned all that much. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live this Christmas Day from London.
0: This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. I'm Tom Edwards. A very Merry Christmas to you, wherever in the world you happen to be. And we start this festive edition of The Globalist with a look back at the year gone by. Here's Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, with a very special What We Learned in 2023.
3: If I could save time in a bottle
2: We learned this week, or were reminded by the producers this week, that it is that time of year at which we are expected to broaden our remit beyond the last seven days, and instead reflect on what we learned from the previous 365. We also learned, and to be honest, they could have been less brusque about this, that they did not share our enthusiasm for the idea of a special programme in which the previous 50 or so, what we learned monologues, were spliced together and played back-to-back in one glorious six-hour satirical reverie. Perhaps, and this is obviously a very real and legitimate concern, they feared being sued for the medical expenses of listeners whose sides had actually split or had laughed their heads literally off. (laughs) Or we thought maybe we could just clip some of our best-loved whimsical commentary on events of 2023 as a sort of highlight reel and save ourselves having to write a whole other thing. Like, for example, this absolute ball terror from late April when we remarked hilariously hilariously, upon the coincidence of the United Kingdom hosting, at around the same time, the coronation of King Charles III and the Eurovision Song Contest. A reminder that the great event will take place on May the 6th, just a week before Eurovision, and yes, one will be an undignified circus of dubiously credentialed foreigners descending on Britain to caper about inexplicably in daft costumes to a dismal soundtrack, while the other is a song contest... However, circumstances forced a rethink. And by circumstances, we mean producers telling us we wouldn't get paid.
3: Oh, Just get on
2: with it. They did, yes, also tell us that. All of which said, much of what we learned this year was unamusing in the extreme. As for the umpty thousandth consecutive year, we learned that humankind had not, in many respects, learned all that much. We learned that this guy... Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says that there is a time for peace and a time for war. This is a time for war. Had not learned that just because the only thing you have is a hammer, it does not necessarily follow that everything else is a nail. And we learned that a similar, somewhat partial reading of the book of Ecclesiastes, seriously lads, the moral of the thing is actually in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, that bracingly existential stuff about all being vanity and us all coming from and returning to dust, was being clung to by this guy. Though we did learn, as Russia's 72-hour lightning conquest of Ukraine lumbered into its second year, that Russia is, despite itself, capable of enhancing the general gaiety with a brief comedic interlude, at least a brief interlude of that specifically Russian variety of comedy in which an amount of futile slapstick precedes the violent demise of the principal protagonist. There's a pretty wild situation unfolding in Russia tonight. The White House says it is monitoring. It all started earlier this evening when that man, uh, Putin's chef, Evgeny Prigozhin, the head of a Russian-affiliated mercenary group that's been fighting in Ukraine, appeared to release a video on social media accusing Russian military leaders of misleading the country and its president, Vladimir Putin, over the initial reasons for the invasion of Ukraine itself. Yes, we learned that among those who had developed reservations, re the decision of Russian President Vladimir Putin to plough billions of rubles and hundreds of thousands of his fellow citizens into the fields of Ukraine for... Let's check that again absolutely no good reason whatsoever, was Yevgeny Prigozhin, the Leningrad hot dog cart operative turned international mercenary warlord. From Prigozhin's abortive mutiny and subsequent events, we learned two things, really. One was a reiteration of that whole thing about come at the king, best not miss. The other was the unwisdom of flying domestic in Russia, having affronted its president.
3: (laughs) Would you like to ride in my beautiful Sticking,
2: however, with the theme of grimly farcical aerial combat, if one story dominated at least a portion of the 2023 news cycle, while also seeming like it was some kind of grand metaphor for our times, it was that peculiar interregnum during which the United States, and therefore the world beyond, was transfixed by the spectacle of an ungainly bag of hot air blundering stupidly about the place with probably malevolent intent.
1: I did everything right and they indicted me.
2: And yes, there was also a Chinese spy balloon. We learned from the bumbling marauding of this pair of bloated dirigibles, however, that one is much more easily dealt decisively with than the other. We learned that a Chinese spy balloon is no match for a US Air Force F-22... Though one can only wonder at the strange melancholy that must afflict a victorious fighter pilot having to paint that one on his nose cone. We learned that a rap sheet 91 charges long with the prospect of more where those came from is insufficient, judging by current polling, to dissuade a hefty plurality of American voters from returning to Earth's most powerful office, someone who may be obliged to spend his second stint leading the free world from inside the Hooskow. We learned, in sum, of no more astute diagnosis of what continued to ail us in 2023 than the one provided by former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who, in happier, saner times, we milk toast metropolitan media elite types enjoyed the luxury of regarding as one of the bad guys. What we've done in our politics is create a situation where we're electing idiots. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Mullett.
0: Thanks very much to the Australian Grinch. He has the green hair, you know. Monocle's Andrew Miller there. This is The Globalist
1: on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries.
0: Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
1: To find out how we could help you, contact us at ubs.com.
0: Next up on the special seasonal edition, we turn our attention to the world of design and architecture. This was a year marked by our own Design Awards, Building with Sustainable Materials, and so much more besides. Here to tell us more about all of that, and maybe to throw a few other Christmas curveballs into the mix, I'm joined now by Monocle's design editor and elf at large, Mr Nick Manice. Uh, Merry Christmas, Tom. Uh, what a way you... to start the day, Nick. I, I mean, really, were you a good boy this year? I would say fair to middling.
4: Fair to middling, and uh, any was was uh, Father Christmas, Santa Claus, however you would like to refer to him. Was mm-hmm. he kind to you? He's
0: always kind to me. That's
4: nice. You know him personally, I imagine. You of grew course. up together more or well, less. I chatted
0: to him here at Midori House a couple of weeks ago. Um, <laughs> he gets a lot of correspondence from my house. Not all of it, Nick, from me.
4: Oh, really? Okay. Uh, I, I was going to say, you know, we're we we're, we're going to talk about design. I, I think maybe. You know, continuing on that Father Christmas bent is the way to go. I mean, this is a man whose sled is so sleek, so fast, so uh, you know. It, there, there's got to be some design behind it. Have you have you seen it? Have you climbed I've aboard?
0: It, I've seen it zipping past. I've not tried it out.
4: You know, because we're, we're, it's we're... powered by magic. You know, Nick. Well, I mean, this is something that I'm sure that some, of, some of the people we've spoken to this year would love to learn more about. Because, I mean, maybe a nice way to, to kick off this chat. I'm going to start steering. I've just decided this is, I think I've had a few please, too many eggnogs please to do, kick the day off. for it. <laughs> but it's like, maybe maybe the Design Awards is a nice place to start, because there is some automotive design in there, or some transport design in there, and maybe, maybe Santa could take a leaf out of Kalk, uh, or sorry, Cake, who are a, a Swedish design automotive transport design company, uh, who launched the Kalk and electric motorcycle earlier this year. You did see it in the office. It was a, an impressive piece of machinery. It's a,
0: brilliant, it's a brilliant business. We featured that on Monaco Radio as well before, Nick. It's amazing. You kind of think, there can't be that much more innovation to come. I mean, simple wheels. But how wrong somebody like me would be, well, not this, for the first time.
4: This, this is exactly it. I mean, perhaps bicycles and, and motorcycles are, the, the the I guess, the two modes of transport that I, I struggle to imagine where we go other than making it lighter, because it, it really is a simple construction. It's a seat, two wheels, and, and away you go. But I guess, you know, a, a company like Cake, it, it's it's about experience as much as it is about, you know, designing something that is eco, something that is electric. I mean, that, that, I guess, is almost sort of a given right now. The reason we awarded this as the tidiest two-wheeler in the Monocle Design Awards was because it, it comes back to that experience thing. This is an off-road electric motorcycle, so it's something that you could feasibly take around the streets of London, but then also, I know you like to go away to Norfolk around New Year's, you know, take on some trails off-road up there and, and I, I guess, really have a, an enjoyable time. And what what sets it apart is, I think, for so long, electric vehicles had been held back by the capacities and the and the power of the batteries that they're that they're using. So, so the idea of having an off-roader as a motorcycle was something that you know was almost inconceivable five to ten years ago. But now, somebody like Cake has has done that, and they've created something beautiful as well. So, it's not just a, a nice thing to to I guess ride, but it's also a, a beautiful thing to look at.
0: We also want to talk a little bit, Nick, about materials, and you've alluded to it there, the quest for lightness in certain areas of design specifically, but because of the critical import of sustainability in every way, in terms of building sustainable businesses, but also in terms of sustaining the planet and its brittle ecology, um, there's almost no area that can afford not to engage with innovation and the cutting edge of using different materials and using them more sustainably. And so, unsurprisingly, that's been another area of focus for you this year.
4: Yeah, huge. So, I mean, we had the design awards in, in, in May and then in November, we, we did a design special as well. So May and, May and November are two big design months here. November, we had a feature called Material Matters and, and it, it was looking at, I guess, over the course of the year, the design team at Monocle attends so many different, you know, there are trade fairs that are catering towards architects. There are some that are catering more towards, I guess, interior designers and and, and furniture buyers and and gallerists. But a common theme that sort of seemed to run across all of them was the space for innovation seems to be in materials and in in material choices. I mean, building sustainably now is almost like a given. It, It can be something that can be, I guess, almost taken off 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 the checklist is something that you have to deliver on because the the best designers are automatically thinking about that. And and the space where they're doing a lot of this, where they're making these big differences where, you know, they they're reducing the huge carbon footprints that the construction industry has is by looking at new materials. And that could be something that is, you know, re reusing existing products or waste products. We 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 profiled hempcrete by Lirio Design House, which is an American studio and they they're using hemp to I guess make a, a concrete like material. There's other biocomposites being made by Biomat in Germany. Uh, I was talking about waste there. Urban Radicals are a UK-based studio. They've made bricks out of silt that they actually dredged up from canals in Venice, which is typically just a waste product that was gone off and dumped somewhere, and now they're actually making bricks out of it. And I think it's these these sorts of innovations, these sorts of materials that really are I guess the future of design and what what by by the future I mean their, their potential to unlock new ways of building new construction methods like if all of a sudden you've got a brick that is super super lightweight or, or a, a beam made out of hemp that still is structurally strong you can build higher you can defy seemingly defy gravity by by toying with these things and I think that's why I got particularly excited about this story and why I wanted to flag it
0: Nick Money, it's great to have your company. This well, otherwise would have been a little bit lonely this Christmas morning here in London town. Stay with us if you will. I'd like to pick your brain about some other design trends of the past 12 months.
3: UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to the Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
0: But now this, the Finnish toy maker Juho Yussula, has been crafting wooden toys for a hundred years. Its simple and beautiful toys have delighted Finns for generations and often last decades. We dispatched our Helsinki correspondent, Petri Bertsov, to the factory in central Finland to find out what makes this fifth-generation family company successful and to discover why wooden toys continue to appeal to kids the world over.
1: The end of the year is a busy time at the Juho Yusila toy factory in Juvascula wood is sawn into pieces sanded and varnished and then assembled into toys in all shapes and sizes by the expert craftsmen and women that have worked in this factory for decades this has been a special year for the company as it celebrates its 100 year anniversary a respectable achievement for any company let alone one that makes simple wooden items in an age of digital screens and throw away plastic toys I sat down with Pinya Savo, who represents the fifth generation of this family business and who, instead of jumping straight into a leadership role, is learning the ropes on the factory floor, making toys with her hands. I began by asking Savo what it is about simple wooden toys that makes generation after generation of children fall in love with them.
3: It's sharing enjoyable memories and this uh, nostalgia that's around them. You've had something you've really enjoyed, you want to share it and have these good memories. So the new generations can have the same memories and enjoy the same things. There's not much that a hundred years ago that's same now. Children are the same that they were a hundred years ago. They still want to create and imagine things, and they want to create their own playing around the toys. It hasn't changed so much. Kids are still kids.
1: Research shows that playing with wooden toys has various benefits for a child's health and development. The natural tactility of wood is something that has a calming neurological impact on the brain. The simple design of the toys, such as the posting boxes, trains and block sets, promotes a playing environment that is more tranquil and one that encourages the child to focus on problem-solving and imaginative play. Instead of offering instant gratification, like many of the modern toys, this slower pace of play is beneficial for the child's cognitive development. Kids, it turns out, have not really changed that much in a century.
3: Kids are mostly the same, but of course there's technology that wasn't there a 100 years ago. So it's quite important you take the kids away from it for a moment and they can enjoy more natural ways of playing and it's more like teaching and well like creativity around more natural more simpler toys it's like quite important in these times where you can just give the phone or laptop or something for a child and they can do nothing they they don't really benefit from it. It's quite simple. It's more natural material than plastic. And then our toys, they are targeted for quite young age. So digital toys, they would be probably for older kids. But I still think it's really important to find connection to a toy or a game that you have to play with, not like it plays for you. (laughs) Of course, it gives a lot more for a child creativity, imagination, and a lot of uh, quite useful skills, like motoric skills.
1: Juho product catalogue consists of just a few dozen models, many of which have been in production for several decades, some close to 100 years. The founder of the company, Mr. Juho was a trained teacher and educator and believed that toys could help with a child's development. He designed toys that to this day are very simple, such as building cubes, posting boxes, hammer toys and games, such as Bagatelle, which incidentally became the company's best-selling toy in the 1930s, after the British royal family and the Prince of Wales in particular took a liking to it. Some of your oldest toys date back almost 100 years, but, I mean, do you ever come up with new toys and uh, sort of... Uh, how does the design process of coming up with new toys, how does it go? Somebody just one day says, hey, how about we start making something else? How, how does that work?
3: Well, if there's a completely new model, it's like it just comes up. You don't really take the time to think about it because it, it's like it's the better the less you think about it. But then there's also like you need to make a bit different types of things in different times but they can be little changes not not like entirely new models necessarily
1: as people grow increasingly aware of the harmful environmental effects of plastic toys which are often discarded just after a year or two wooden toys are enjoying somewhat of a renaissance not only is wood a renewable material But wooden toys often last several decades.
3: Yeah, the ecological aspect, it is really growing right now. Some parents want more natural materials for their kids to play with. And also, of course, it lasts longer. And we sell spare parts, so you don't have to buy an entirely new toy every time you lost a little part or something, It, it lasts longer.
1: So next time you're in a toy shop, spare a thought for simple wooden toys. You won't find them on the high street, and if you do, they'll be tucked away behind the glitter of the flashier modern toys. Wooden toys are elegant to look at and pleasant to touch. They encourage creative play and often last through several generations, creating stories and memories to be cherished. For Monocle in Uvascula, i I'm Petri Burtsov. A
0: report there from Petri Bertsoff in Finland. Thanks, Petri. Listening to that, still with me here in Studio One this Christmas morn, is Monocle's design editor, Nick Manice. I just think of you as a young boy rummaging through your stocking. It must have always been a delight to wind up with something wooden in your hand.
4: Always, always got a piece of jarrah. Old wood, sustainably sourced, obviously. You know, we've got to really think about our forest management. Uh, but, you know, big big fan of timber toys and, and timber products more broadly. And actually, that was a delightful segue, Tom, because our December-January issue of Monocle has a huge report on, on the Finnish timber industry and looking at how a country that could potentially be running out of wood uh, is, is dealing with that. And, and, and it's completely reshaped how, I guess, local makers there are, are considering, you know... What might have been previously defected wood, and and using it on actual products, and and almost celebrating imperfections like little knots or little nicks that are that are a natural part of, of of timber furniture.
0: And now, Nick, obviously, finding benchmarks wherever they are in the world of excellence, trailblazers, innovators is so much part. If if there's a defining characteristic of Monocle's whole editorial approach, it it may be that whether that's about shaping cities, uh, great businesses, and one thing that I always enjoy in our design coverage is where we. Look to find people who are who are pushing that envelope and trying to you know move the needle on some of these. Let's let's roll the clock back a bit to the middle of the year in summertime, the July August issue. Lots in there about designing, well, a better design education. I think this is something really important because that is about firing the next generations as well. Um, tell me what we looked at.
4: Well, we, we visited a, a town in rural Alabama called Newburn, where Auburn University, uh, you know, a, a very big school in, in the United States, actually sends its architecture students, its third and fifth year architecture students, out into the field to actually get their hands dirty and, and build things. And I think what's so important and what's so impressive about this this approach to an architectural education is it really, it does two things. One, it, it gives back to the community that it's in. So this, this relatively impoverished town in, in the rural South of America now has amazing works of architecture partly because, I mean, I think students early in your career is when you're most creative, when you're, you know, not weighed down by, I guess, lessons learned on the job or, or, or looking for shortcuts. You're perhaps your most ambitious. So it's this this small town that has, you know, like its fire station is, is breathtaking. There are community houses that are these almost sleek Nordic forms that you just wouldn't expect in rural Al- Alabama. Parks with... Uh, Amazing uh, shelters for people to picnic under that again typically would have been something that was off the shelf. So you've got these things, I guess, being designed by students that are that are that are breathtaking in their own right. But you're also, I guess. You know, I I come from a design background myself. Clearly, I wasn't very good at it because I've I've become a journalist. But I think the thing that I found most challenging when I started was that really at university you don't learn how to build. You learn how to draw things. You learn how to perhaps detail something, but the actual practicalities of putting something together often gets lost. What Auburn have done here is... Actually, force students to think about you know can I really make a wall like that? can I you know, have a, have a roof beam that 's this long structurally like it 's one thing to have it on paper, but then when you 've actually got to physically make it yourself you know they 're getting their hands dirty out in the field it, it leads i guess to a more wholesome and and, and well rounded education and I think that 's incredibly important i mean Architecture. We talked about materials earlier, and the huge carbon footprint of construction. Really, I think if if we're if we're looking at the bigger issues today that everyone's talking, it is sustainability, it is the environment, and I think architects can have such a big impact on them, and giving them real world skills that they can then translate when they graduate and actually practice. I think is is hugely hugely important.
0: Well, speaking of translation and the devil being in the detail, I want to. Flip forwards a couple of months, I think it was in the November issue, and again, looking at benchmarking and innovation, really interesting piece. I'm a bit of a, you know, I love my print products, I love magazines, I love typefaces, an interesting little look at trying to design typefaces that can work across language, types, and again, this is something in an ever more joined up world we perhaps need to be more literate about, but certainly talk about this is a really interesting place upon which to shine a light.
4: Yeah, I mean, this is one of my favourite stories uh, from this year. We reported it in in Newport, Rhode Island, but it's about this, I guess, globally based type foundry called Sharp Type, and they've over the last few years have been developing a new uh, typeface, which they're calling Earth, uh, which can, I guess work across multiple different language forms uh, or language groups, rather. So you've got Arabic letters, you've got Indic letters, you've got Japanese letters, and and typically you don't, uh, you know, in more Greek, Thai, English, all all these language groups that typically need to have a different font because you have different accents on them. You have, you know, a a, a little flare here or there, or a, a serif coming off a particular letter. That means that a font can't consistently be applied or at least yet hadn't been developed that can be consistently applied. So if you're a, a global media group working across different languages, if you're a bank working across different languages, it was very hard to have a consistent brand across all your print products. What they've done is they've developed this typeface that really looks consistent and cohesive no matter which language you're writing in or which lettering you're using. And I think for me, what got me so excited is, I've, I, one, I've never seen something like this. I mean, they're the, I guess, first in some ways. I mean, I, I know Google and, and some some big players have had attempts at this, but really quite poorly. This is this is a really, really bespoke and beautiful typeface that they've developed. So we went, we went and talked to them and we talked about the significance and the power of, of the printed word. And, and I guess having a typeface that can really unite people and bring people together across the globe was quite exciting.
0: Absolutely. Um, Nick, thank you so much for shining a little bit of a spotlight on just a couple of the stories uh, featured in your uh, pages in the magazine uh, this year so much more of that of course to come as we look ahead into 2024 but thanks for joining me this Christmas day the rest of the day what's in store you mentioned eggnog earlier is the turkey ready is there a, an old bird back at home with your name on it ready for a, a quick stuffing
4: yeah I mean obviously I'm a, I'm a big fan of meat and potatoes as well so they will uh, be on the plate alongside it uh, and then obviously some wooden toys to play with around the other day lovely stuff
0: Nick Merry Christmas to you uh, see you in 2024. And that's all for today's programme. May I say once again, a very Merry Christmas to you, wherever you may be. I'll pass on seasonal thanks too to our producer, Carlotta Rabello and our studio manager, Mariella Bevan. There's plenty of special seasonal music on the way and a very special edition of The Briefing. I'll be back with that for you in a few short hours. The Globalist itself returns at the same time tomorrow morning with another look back. At the year that's almost wrapped up. Until then, though, I'm Tom Edwards. Thank you very much for tuning in. And may I say once again, every very Merry Christmas.